Hi, I'm Anna McEwen, and this is The Epic Narrative. And now, my dad, Bob Switzer. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whenever you're connecting with The Epic Podcast, known as The Epic Narrative. (laughs) That would have been another name, huh? The Epic Podcast. But, you know, technically... I don't know what an epic podcast would look like, but I do know what an epic narrative looks like. And we have been on that ride for a while. And technically we're kind of, we're kind of getting to the end. I think we can actually say we can see the end from here. It's, I don't, I don't know how many more podcasts it'll take to get there, but I can see it. I can see it. We are definitely, we definitely have a lot less, a lot less chapters to go than what we've been through. So <laughs> we'll see what happens from here on out. I chuckle. I, I, I probably, I don't know. It's been a while since I've probably told you this, but I remember when I first started writing this stuff down or not just writing it down, like the decision was made, the decision, I am going to do this after Honestly, it, years of people saying, Bob, you should tell the story. Bob, you should tell the story. Like you, your insights to the relationships are really interesting. Your, your, you know, the way you combine information is really interesting. And I, I hope that's still true. <laughs> it might have only been interesting because I was in such a time constraint that I had to pile it all on really fast. But the decision was made. And I, I remember I, I thought, well, I'll do the life of David. It's something I'm familiar with. I did it at uh, at this camp that I ran for. I ran the camp for about eight years, eight summers, but uh, I didn't speak on David every year. But one of the years I did it, so I was familiar with it, and I had reprised it in shorter form, you know, sections of his of his life, you know, for an hour here or two hour segment there. I taught at a couple schools, uh, you know, for a class in in Old Testament. Um, stories or something like that. So I was somewhat familiar with it. And I know that a lot of people are familiar with the life of David, even if you don't know the Bible or or even believe in God. There's stories from the life of David, legends that I knew people could connect to, such as Goliath and Bathsheba. Those are two of the big ones uh, that, that he's known for. He's often seen as a shepherd boy. A lot of people know that. All that kind of stuff. So I remember kind of putting this all together uh, in my head and I thought, let's see, how many, you know, how many hours would this take? And I thought to myself, did you hear that big roar? That's the furnace. It's getting cold, getting cold this time of year in my part of the, my, my neck of the woods. Um, I remember thinking, let's see, it takes like, I, I, I know it probably take me about two hours <laughs> to talk about his life before he was a king and maybe two hours after his. So I'm thinking four hours, you know, 30 minutes an episode. So, you know, I did the math, you know, basically eight episodes. I thought, well, I, you know, maybe I'll I, I read. I remember reading first and second Samuel and thinking, OK, well, maybe, uh, you know, I might need a couple more for maybe four more episodes. So I was thinking 12 episodes, that's, you know, one a week, that's like three months, and that'll be good. Like I can, 
I can do three months of podcasts and and we'll see what happens. You know, maybe maybe it catches on, maybe people like it. Because internally, I'm I'm such an optimist, a ridiculous optimist, and I don't mind being ridiculously optimistic. But I thought I, you know, on a practical standpoint, like you can't you can't make any money doing this unless you're you're at the very least right. You pull in a couple uh, twenty thousand people who have subscribed, not people who listen, but people who who are going to get the download every 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 episode. And I thought, well, let's see, I have, you know, 2,000 friends on Facebook. If they all subscribed, which I know is ridiculously optimistic, I thought I still need, you know, 18,000 more people. Like, how in the world does that happen? (laughs) And then, like, even to see, like, a significant jump, right, you need to get around 40,000, and then to even get close to calling it like a part-time job, you need like a hundred thousand. And I'm, I'm just like, I, I wonder if I could get there. It'd be really fun if I could get there. Not so much for the money, but, but that would be interesting to have this kind of, you know, storytelling and have that many people wanting to hear it. Like that's pretty, that's pretty cool. So that's all, that's all in my thought process. I'm like, okay, 12, okay, three months, that'll work. (laughs) And then, and then, you know, I'm doing all this research and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I, all that's fun for me. And then I finally sit down and I start writing out these episodes and I'm trying to write out episodes in 30 minute segments is the way I'm kind of, I know I'm not going to like hardcore it like, Oh, you know, 29 minutes. I got to end now. I thought, well, you know, I'll give myself five minutes on either end, 25 minutes, some week, 35, 40 minutes on the next week. No big deal. And then maybe we'll actually do two a week because, you know, 30 minutes is 30 minutes. Anyway, so all of that decision, and I'm writing, I'm just writing, right? Episode one, episode two. And I remember I got to, um, I got to episode 15 and I'm like, uh, uh, I'm not, I'm not even like close. I'm, I'm. I'm not close to being anywhere close to done. And I'm on episode 15. I'm already three, three, you know, episodes over what I thought I would need for, for a really, um, detailed ex, uh, uh, story opportunity. (laughs) And now we're like on episode 56 and I think I can see the end, but I'm not sure how many more episodes it'll take. Part of me thinks it'll take about three three, maybe four episodes. And then I just start laughing. Cause I think, Bob, how many times have you said, I, 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 how many times have you put a piece of paper and you'll, I'll post some pictures on his, on Instagram, my Instagram account. Um, hashtag the epic, epic narrative, but I'll post some pictures in, and I, I put the episodes up on my, these little yellow pieces of paper, notebook paper, and I tape them on my wall. So I kind of see the flow as I'm going and my wall is like, oh, not full, but there's a lot, right? There's 50, 56 pieces of paper up here. And many, many of them I put up thinking this is a, this is an episode. And, and as you know, most of these episodes go about 50 minutes, not 30. And some of the early ones I think went over an hour, hour and a half. 
because I just I was you know front loading a lot of information, a lot of characters, as well as just a philosophy of the my my view on the wrath of God and the goodness of God, and how that kind of gets misconstrued by so many people who are you know who interpret Scripture and interpret the Word of God. It's fascinating to me how much time this has taken. But that's the essence of an epic, right? You sit there and you walk away going, holy cow, there's a lot in there. There's a lot in there. And there is, and there should be. And I've, I really hope you've enjoyed the ride. I thoroughly enjoy telling these stories. And as you know, I am planning on telling in the next one. And by the time this airs, I if, if we maintain one a week, which we may not, if if the demand is there, we we may have done two a week or whatever. But if the demand is there, and uh, we'll, we'll see what we do. But if we're still doing one a week, then I am probably well into recording the next epic, which would start with with Genesis one one. And man, is that a, I I I laugh because. <laughs> my wife, who is like my biggest fan, she honestly has been such an encouragement and such a blessing through this whole thing. She sees me. I spend all these mornings, you know, huddled around my laptop with the notebook paper or I'm printing off pages from some ancient text or history, uh, history book or archaeology book or whatever. And <laughs> anthropology books. I, I just I love it. I love all that stuff. Because I see people in all of it, I guess is what it is. For me, I don't see dates as much as I see the village. I don't see the war. I see the people that are fighting the war. So it's it's fascinating to me. I just see all these people and the, the myriad of decisions that, that they could have made along the way that would have changed the outcome at some level, sometimes drastically, sometimes not. And I, as, I, as I've said many times, I don't think any of that puts God's sovereignty in jeopardy. Uh, his plan his plan rolls on without a doubt, but it's still fascinating to me to process. And anyways, I hope you're enjoying the ride. But the epics are just like that. You, you just walk away going, man, that was epic. There was so much more there than what, than what I thought. And there's even more. Like, you know this, because you could take this whole series – and bump it up against, you know, the book of Psalms and try and coordinate the Psalms with, with, uh, you know, with the life of David. And not only just, you know, one Psalm per chapter or whatever, because because Psalms were songs. And as you know, there's certain songs in your life that you go back to that mean a lot to you. Right. I think every couple I know has like, this is our song. And for the rest of their lives, whenever that song plays, it's like, oh, it's our song. This is our song. Let's get up and dance or let's let's hold each other's hands or or maybe I'm alone and I hear that song and I go back to those moments. Like it's it's just the way the Psalms are. And you could do that with the Psalms and the life of David. And you could say, wow, like this Psalm could belong to like four or five episodes in his life because it it applies. And it's true. And he probably sang that song during those times, to remind himself, to testify to himself about about the the fact that God hasn't left him and that He is always there, and and not just him, but like all throughout time, people would refer to the Psalms during times of of trouble to communicate where they you know where they end up, 
Because majority of the Psalms, by the time the end of it comes, you're at a place where you are, where David's confessing God's power and his love and his and his sovereignty. Even even Christ on the cross, right? He he starts out that quote. You know, uh, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He wasn't just he didn't just end there, right? As a, 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 I know, I know, I think I covered this before, but. In rabbinical teaching, you you start a verse and everybody quotes the rest of the chapter because not everybody could read the Torah. Not everybody could read the whole chapter. It wasn't like everybody had a copy of it. So you memorized it. And the Psalms were huge. You Everybody memorized the book of Psalms. And so when he quotes that on script, uh, you know, from the, from the cross, he quotes it. Everybody who heard it would have started reciting, whether whether under their breath or in their hearts or some of them flat out out loud, would have quoted the rest of the chapter. And it what does it say? It, it basically retorts the original, the opening line. David comes to, to later on in the psalm, he says, but you, you've actually never forsaken me. You've never left my side. You're, you're always there. And I know it. And that's what Jesus was really coming down to. It's not that, that God turned his back on Jesus. And Jesus was like, why have you forsaken me? He was letting the people know, listen, God is still here. He's not forsaken you. He's not forsaken me. He is still here. Do not think this is the end of a relationship. Do not think that someone turned his back on me. Do not think that love has abandoned me. Anyways, it's, it's, a, it's a precious thing to know. And again, the epic, when you're done with this story, you could say, I could do it all again. And if you're, you know, if it's if if you want to, <laughs> go right on ahead. Go right on ahead. Listen to it all again. Don't even start the book. Of, don't even start with Genesis. Just go back and listen to David again. All right. Enough about me. Why why do we even do that? What was I talking? Oh, because I can see the end. That's that's it. Yeah, a little engineer in my head. This is where you were, Bob. Pay attention. Okay. Attention has been paid. So we're at um, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 21, and this is basically like a backstory. We we start to get we just get we just get some antidotes from David's life. This is not chronological uh, anymore, like it has been up until this point. It's almost like uh, you know they got done with with David being restored to Jerusalem. And the the writer here, Samuel, is like, mm, uh, what else? What else? You know, is there anything else we probably should make sure that you know is a part of his life that we should probably remember? Maybe they kind of see. I, I don't know. Maybe they're you know chronologically looking at David and going, we probably should write down his life. Probably probably should start writing down the story so that people can have it. Right, the chronicler was writing things down. A lot of detail in chronicles. I haven't even, I didn't even touch. Well, that's not true. I did touch it when it came to the bringing of uh, the ark into Jerusalem because they actually did give a lot of detail in, in chronicles. Samuel kind of made it into a, a pretty, pretty easy logistical uh, thing when it was probably a logistical nightmare. Anyways. 2 Samuel 21, during the reign of David, so somewhere in the reign of David, there was a famine for three successive years. So David sought the face of the Lord, and the Lord said, 
It is on account of Saul and his blood-stained house. It is because he put the Gibeonites to death. Wow. So, so did God send the famine? Now, this goes back to a question we've asked a number of times. Did God send the famine because Saul had backed, literally backed out and then did the exact opposite of an of a agreement that he had with the Gibeonites? Israel had sworn to spare them. He had said, listen, I'm, you know, I'm just going after the Amorites. I'm not going to go after you. Don't worry about it. I'll, I, you know, I'll, I'll leave you alone. But it says Saul just got so excited over the, over the fact that he had all these victories. He went ahead and uh, tried to annihilate them, tried to literally wipe the Gibeonites off the face of the earth. But he didn't succeed. But, of course, they... Uh, you know, to say that they felt a little bitter toward that uh, would be a minor statement, right? As far as they were concerned, even though David was king, they had been betrayed. They were betrayed by Israel. And the Lord says it's on account of Saul and his blood-stained house. It's because he put the Gibeonites to death. He, He's like, he backed out. He, he betrayed a, a, an oath. He betrayed something, you know, a promise. He made a covenant. He broke it. So God lets David know why it's happening. Not that God did it. He's, he gives, he gives David, we call it in Christianese, a word of knowledge. He gives him insight. This is what's going on because, because of Saul's betrayal, the country your your people are now suffering because the enemy has a chance, has a right, had an open door to bring in death and destruction. It's it's just it's just the way it is. And God doesn't stop that stuff because the enemy has a legal right to do it because of the choices that were made by the people that he's given the freedom to make the choices. God doesn't stop the choices. He doesn't. He doesn't step in and say, "Whoa, whoa, 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 wrong, 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 wrong." I'm going to take freedom away from you, and I'm going to tell you what choice you need to make. And if you don't make it, then I'm going to beat the tar out of you, and then you'll make the right choice. Because if you don't, I kill you. That's not how God. Dis- that's not yeah, right. Discipline. What does that come from? It comes from the word disciple. God doesn't disciple His children. By beating the tar out of them. He disciples them in freedom and in love and in hope and in peace and in joy. It's, it's you know, that's the discipleship of heaven. So, <laughs> I, know, I just started to like to, to think, preach, Bob. And I'm like, no, 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 Bob, tell the story. Get back to the story. <laughs> so, back to the story. So, David, David knows why it's happened. So he goes to the Gibeonites. He summons the Gibeonites to to him. So, you know, whatever their leadership council is, he sends out messengers. Uh, let's, uh, you know, let's, I, I'd like to speak with you. So they probably come with uh, bitterness in their, in their hearts. I'm not saying they showed up angry and started spitting on people, but internally, 
there's a lack of trust. It's it's ethnically based, and there's no way around that. It's this is a racial issue. This is an ethnic issue. Uh, as far as they were concerned, Israel, King Saul, Saul had you know ethnically cleansed, caused genocide upon them. And he did it, I'm sure, all in the name of God. Because if you're going to do something wrong, you might as well make sure God's telling you to do it. Because, you know, then who can argue? It's a pathetic uh, process, but many, many, many of us have uh, engaged in it. So he calls them in and he says, uh, what can I do for you? How can I make atonement so that you will be will bless the Lord's inheritance so that you will have, you know, favor with us again so that we all can get along so that the blessings of our country can flow into your country. They've been cut off. David, this is, you know, granted it's a, it's a, it's a famine, right? It's a, probably a drought is usually the same thing in this culture. There's a famine going on. There's not a lot, but the wealth of the nation has allowed you know, Israel under David's rule, the the wealth of them has has allowed them to continue to flourish, and the Gibeonites are suffering. And he's like, let's you know, let's work this out. What what can I do? What can I do to make this right? I know why we don't get along, and I get it. It makes sense to me. Saul betrayed you. Saul made a promise, and he annihilated you. And and you know what? I'm the new king, and I take ownership. I, I get that. I I own that. It wasn't my choice. I own that. Again, this is another beautiful thing about leadership, right? He didn't. He did. He didn't just blow Saul off and be like, you know what? He was an absolute jerk. He was a horrible leader. He, you know, he created a culture of fear and manipulation. He obviously went back on his promises. He give things away and then take them back. Uh, listen, I'm really sorry he did that, but listen, he, Saul's not me. Saul's not me, and I'm now in charge. So let's just forget about it, and let's move on. Let's work something out. No, he took ownership of it. He's like, I get it. What can I do for you? Like I, My country, even though I had nothing to do with running it, my country betrayed you. My army destroyed you. I did not order that. I was not there. But it still happened. You know, so many leaders don't want that. Don't want that. They just don't. They don't want to go back to the past. They don't want to talk about it. They want to move on. That was the previous administration. That was the previous pastor. That was the previous group of, of leaders. That was the previous board members. They made the decision to sell the property. They made the decision to shut things down. They made the decision to build this monstrosity of a building and take on debt. They made that decision. That wasn't me. So don't blame this on me. Or they made the decision not to ever change, and they they didn't change, and they've gotten us stuck in this, and and that's why we're dying. You know, we're, our name, you know, needs to be changed. Our brand needs to be changed. We need to make all these changes because the old administration was just a bad. They were just stuck in a bad rut, and I'm not that guy. Or you take ownership and say, you know what? That's our history. That's our history, and now we need to deal with it. We need to deal with the results of choices that were made by people that were that are no longer here and I had nothing to do with. That's fascinating to me. 
Again, this this would go back to our des, you know our definition, so to speak, of diplomacy versus politics. He's not playing politics here. He's being diplomatic. He's looking out for what's best for the Gibeonites. He's like, let's work this out so that you can be blessed by the Lord. It doesn't. This is not going to hurt David if the Gibeonites doesn't you know don't don't connect to him. He's this is not in his best interest. It's in their best interest that he's making this connection that he called out to them and he. And and he said, let's make this right. And why did he do that? Because he sought the Lord. And the Lord's like, yeah, you got a famine because of uh, Saul's betrayal. And he could have just went to the temple of God and been like, you know what? Forgive us for we have sinned. Uh, sacrifice a few animals. Like relieve the famine. I'm sure that the priests were praying about this. And the worship leaders are praying about this and the songs are being written about this like we need to break this famine this famine needs to end you know pray the lord will send the rain three years why didn't god tell him about this the first day why didn't he tell him about the about it the first year i don't know i don't know that's the fun part about stories but i'm sure he didn't do it out of out of a a, a sense of like well i gotta make you pay for this god doesn't do that because Jesus didn't do that. Jesus, remember, Jesus is the word of God. He is the word of God. So if it doesn't, if it's not in the life of Jesus, it's not in the word of God. Whoa, that's heavy. But it's true. But it's true. Right? The book of John says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. That's Jesus. It doesn't say in the in the beginning was the Bible and the Bible was with God and the Bible contains God. No, 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 no. Jesus is the word. Jesus is with God. Jesus is God. And so if it's not in the life of Jesus, it's not in the Bible. I know it's scary. I know it's scary because a lot of us have been taught that the Bible is the standard but Jesus is the standard. So if the Bible doesn't match up to the standard of Jesus, then we go back to the Bible. I don't think we throw the Bible out. I do know that there's always a danger that people look at inconsistencies in the Bible. They look at contradictions in the Bible, and they're like, toss it out. It's a, you know, it's a, it's a literary book. It's an art book. It's all metaphorical. It's mythological. We can put it in some other category. No, I believe the Bible is the word of God, but it bounces up against the word of God which is Jesus. So if the word of God doesn't match up with the Bible, I go to the word of God and I say, all right, let's let's work this out. Inconsistencies in scripture should draw us closer into Jesus because he's the word. He's the one we need to focus on. And then we take all we know about Jesus and we put it up against the words that were written and we say, okay, Let's work it out. And I know we've, we've done that. If you've followed this podcast and you've stuck with this podcast, we've done it a number of times. And I do know sometimes it has made some of you very uncomfortable. And if you have written me about it, we have probably dealt with it on a bonus podcast that we try and do on Thursdays. But we're so far into this podcast at this point, you probably know all that. So on with the show. David owns it. And the Gibeonites answer him. He's, they say, we, we have no right to demand silver or gold from Saul or his family, nor do we have the right to put anyone to death in Israel. Oh, 
so they basically they take the you know the line of humility listen we're just we're just poor isolated tribe of gibeonites we have no right to demand silver or gold in other words we we you know to 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 take Saul's family's riches and and their wealth and their heritage and we we don't have right to put anyone uh, to death it's up to you so David goes back to him all right so what do you want me to do for you and they answered as for the man who destroyed us and plotted against us so that we have been decimated and have no place anywhere in Israel let seven of his male descendants be given to us to be killed and their bodies exposed before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the Lord's chosen one. Now they just said, we don't have the right to ask for anything. Now that was David's out. He could have said, all right, so let's work out an agreement and uh, we'll just we'll just move on. But David didn't. He's He, he reiterated Basically, he he says it again. What do you want me to do for you? Now, they could have requested gold or silver, even though they had said, we, we, we shouldn't demand gold or silver from Saul. We shouldn't take any of his inheritance, and we shouldn't kill anybody, because far be it from us to be just like the one who killed us. So now David removes that stigma from it, says, all right, that's fine. Let me reiterate, what do you want from me? Do you want gold, silver? Do you want people to like a, a blood a blood uh, debt? Do you want to pay that? How, how do I pay it? How do I take care of it? This isn't Saul's problem anymore. This is my problem. I'm the king. I own what we did. It doesn't matter if I had anything to do with it or not. I own it. It's part of our past. I want to fix it. Now David's doing all this, and again, he has no guarantee that the famine's going to end. He just knows that when he went to the Lord, the Lord showed him that there was something of honor. There was an honor that had been broken. There was an oath that had been broken. And that's what needed to be fixed. Now, this is David's David's way of trying to fix it. Somewhere in here, I don't think David made all the connections from the from the character of God into how to pay this price because he gives them the the seven sons the the seven male descendants of Saul he says i'll give them to you all right you want seven male descendants in other words you want to take some of the heritage of Saul and have seven of his male descendants represent all the men and women that he had killed when he came through the your tribe and in representation of who they you know, of the male descendants and the heritage that they bring and the line of Saul that they they perpetuate, you want to cut those lines off and have that represent a full reparation, full payback for what Saul did when he broke his oath. And Saul says, all right, I'll give them to you. Now, I don't know who's sitting around the table at this. I don't know what advisors are with him. I don't know what counsel he's getting. I don't know if Ahithophel is there, but, but somehow this makes sense to David. And that's all I can land on. I know it doesn't make sense to God. God doesn't do tit-for-tat stuff. He doesn't do murder. You you murdered over there, so 
I'm, you know, I'm going to murder over here. What did Jesus say? He's like, you, you don't, you don't, you don't do an eye for an eye. He's like, that's, that's what the law, you know, that's what, that's what you say. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye. But I say unto you, and who is he? The word of God says unto you, turn the other cheek. If you poke an eye, I'll give you another eye. It's, 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 it's abundant in grace and mercy. So I don't know all the ramifications, uh, sorry, all the influences that are in David when he makes his decision. I know a lot of them. We've covered them for, for a while here in the podcast. He's got a ton of culture and counselors, and, and he's got foreign governments, governments that are watching what's going on. They want to know, what is David going to do? With this, with this broken oath from a previous administration, and David, David says, "All right, you want seven male descendants? I will give them to you." And it goes on to, and names them all. Now he he says he spear he spear, spears spares Mephibosheth, the son of uh, you know son of Jonathan, right? He keeps him alive, the one with the broken feet. But he goes on. And he, and he lists the other seven, and it says in verse 9, He handed them over to the Gibeonites, who killed them and exposed their bodies on the hill before the Lord. Now they went to Gibeah, uh, uh, right, where Saul had, had his capital city, and they basically probably hung them over the wall and exposed their bodies on a hill before the Lord. And all seven of them fell together. They were all killed at the same time during some festival of the harvest just as the barley harvest was beginning so there's actually if if you follow the timeline of life in that culture you would exact you would know exactly probably within a week or two of exactly when this occurred you know if you were reading this in in the time of david but one of the concubines rizba daughter of ira took a sackcloth, spread it out for herself on a rock. From the beginning of the harvest till the rain poured down from the heavens on the bodies, she did not let the birds touch them during the day or the wild animals touch them by night. So this was a this was a concubine. And and Sorry, I looked down at my notes. I was like, wait, where, where are you, Bob? Oh, there I am. Okay, she she protected all seven bodies. All seven bodies were protected. And this is for probably a month from the end of the harvest till the rain poured down. Now, what was our problem here? Oh, we had a famine, which probably was a drought, which probably means there hadn't been rain for a long time. So she started protecting the body. She had no idea when she was going to stop. She just knew that she did not want the bodies of the of the relatives of, of one of the kings of Israel to be torn apart by dogs and and uh, at night by, by cougars or tigers or bears. She didn't want the the vultures and crows and others and you know all these nasty things to come and poke at them and eat them during the day. So she was busy flinging rocks at them, waving flags at them, whacking them with sticks. And she slept, but she slept very lightly. And when she would hear the the growl of a of a coyote or a wolf, she would hear the 
the the heavy breathing of a lion or a tiger. She she went after him. And she protected him. And when David was told what what this girl was doing, Rizba, he went and he took the bones of wait, what? Of Saul and Jonathan. Wait a minute. Really? You see, Saul, David, David hears what the concubine's doing, and he has a he has a revelation. He's like, this isn't about an oath that was broken. This is about honor that wasn't given. I'm guessing somewhere in there, when David realized, wait, Saul was never buried as a king. Jonathan was never buried as a prince. They were they were they were taken from the battlefield after they died by another group of people who did have a a a uh, honorable connection to Saul. Saul had had showed up when they were in battle, when they were being besieged and he defeated their enemies so that they could be saved. They appreciated that. There was a there was a physical connection between them and and the tribe of Benjamin because of of a agreement that they made where where they intermarried so that the name of this other tribe could continue on the wives were you know were given to benjamite men it was it was interesting how it all happened but david realized wait a minute i jonathan and and saul need to be buried where the kings are buried so david went and he got the bones of saul and jonathan and all the bones that had been killed of those of the seven men that he had given up. And he gathered them all together. And he took them all to the tomb of Saul's father, Kish, in Benjamin. He goes to the tribe of Benjamin. He goes to the village where Saul was born. He goes to the tomb where Saul's family was. And he he buried them accordingly. He did everything the king had commanded after that. He did everything that was appropriate for a king to be buried. He honored Saul and Jonathan once again in the presence of his family, in the presence of the tribe. And he buried them where they where they should have always been. I mean, it's really fascinating. And it says, after that, God answered prayers in be, on behalf of the land, and the famine was lifted. Why Why did God do that then? Because he was waiting? No, because honor restores the standard. Forgiveness restores the standard. The doorway for the death and destruction of famine was closed to the enemy because forgiveness and honor was given. And when God gave the revelation as to what was going on, David David proceeded. I don't think David proceeded perfectly because he put seven men to death, but he he continued to pay attention to what God was doing. And when he saw what the concubine was doing in protecting and honoring the bones of David's David's relatives, uh, sorry, of Saul's relatives, he he sat back and he said, "All right, what is going on here? There's something here for me." And he realized, "I have I didn't protect Saul and Jonathan's bones. I didn't do the right thing here. 
there's there's a culture of honor here that I've missed. And when the when culture when the honor and forgiveness was was given when it was restored when the the standard was restored the doorway shut for the enemy to continue to bring death and destruction through famine and and the land the famine was lifted. Pretty awesome, pretty awesome. And again, Dave was David perfect in all this? I don't think so. But still, a good lesson for us to learn. One of the many layers to the epic of David. And then uh, the re- the rest of the chapter is, is interesting. Again, we kind of we kind of get these these snippets, right? Once again, there was a battle between Philistines and Israel, and David went down with his men to fight against the Philistines, and he came he became exhausted. And Ishbadnab, one of the descendants of Rapha, whose bronze spearhead weighed three hundred shekels. That's another giant. He was armed with a new sword and said he would kill David. So he had a special sword. You know how they name swords like in Lord of the Rings? Like this would have been named, you know, David Killer or something like that. (laughs) And he took that sword into battle. And his only goal, this giant's only goal was to kill David. He was he was like a like an assassin. As much as he was a warrior, he had one assignment that day. Find his way through the armies of David, find David, kill David. Philistines were going to be happy. We lose 10,000 men, we don't care if David's dead. Now since uh <laughs> David had become exhausted, this is that story we referred to during during the uh, the couple podcasts we did on Bathsheba. This is the story that that precipitated him being told, David, you need to stay home during war. You we'll call you when it went for the mop up crew. We'll call you at the end to put you in a place of honor so you can be the victorious king. We don't need Joab's like in essence saying, I don't need my name written in the history books as the as the victor. We can keep your your name there, but if you die. We're in trouble. It says, but Abishai, son of Zariah, Joab's brother, right? Uh, David's David's nephew. He comes to David's rescue. He strikes the Philistine down and kills him. David's Then David's men swore to him saying, never again will you go out with us to battle so that the lamp of Israel not be extinguished. There is a lot there. The begging that went on, the 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 passion with which the men approached David, you are done, David. You're you don't have it anymore. I mean, Abishai killed this giant on his own. Remember, it's not like the giant was unarmed. David was David was stuck. David was cornered. He couldn't get away. This giant had him. David couldn't run anymore. It was, this was, David was, David was going to die. Then it says that in in the course of time, there was another battle with the Philistines at at Gob. And at this time, uh, Shabakai, the Hishitite, killed Saph, one of the descendants of Rapha. Again, Rapha was the father of Goliath. So now we have two of the sons of, uh, two brothers of Goliath have been died here. In another battle with the Philistines at Gob, Ananias, son of Jar, the Bethlehemite, killed the brother of, of Goliath, the brother of Goliath, the Gittite, who had a spear with a shaft like a weaver's rod. In other words, it was really long and really heavy. 
And still in another battle which took place at Gath, there was a there was a huge man with six fingers on in each hand and six toes on each foot, 24 in all. He was also a descendant from Rapha. When he taunted Israel, Jonathan, Jonathan, son of Shema, David's brother, killed him. So here we here we get a little picture. This is the family of, of David, right? His brothers now are serving with him, and their sons are serving with him in battle. So it says these four descendants of Rapha in Gath, they all fell at the hands of David and his men. So those four descendants of Rapha were considered, or were the brothers of Goliath. They were the relatives of Goliath. They were the ones, they were the other four, what the other four stones were for when David went up against Goliath. He knew that that Goliath had four relatives, all of which could, if Goliath fell, they could have stepped up and say, and continued the one-on-one battle. I know it doesn't sound fair, but that's the way it was. If you were if you were blood relative, you could continue the battle if your relative fell and the other and the opponent was still standing. So here here's you know we get a little snippet into the into these these little battles. But the only thing we needed to know, as far as the the Bible was concerned, was we just needed to see that the descendants of Goliath continued to fall, and that the four others. The four that were that David was willing to kill all ultimately died. And all of that meant something in the land of the Philistines as well. Because for them, you know, their god Dagon was failing every time. Every giant that, that was on their side was seen as a blessing from Dagon, and then he would die. And it would die in the hands of the, the quote, the god of David. Ultimately, peace was was had between the Philistines and and Israel because of David. It was maintained through Solomon, but but these battles that were continually won were won on Philistine land, and they and the Philistines couldn't hold their own. They couldn't hold their cities. They couldn't hold their their land back, and ultimately they had to come into an agreement with with David and Israel, which is pretty cool. Now, Bob. Does God like war? Dun, dun, dun. I don't know. Probably not. (laughs) Are you a pacifist? No. No, I'm not. I know war has to happen in this this broken planet. It just does. Men, Men get carried away with lust and break out into battle. The Bible makes that clear in the book of James. Is there a spiritual war that goes on? Absolutely. God knows. God knows about war. But God hates death. That's not his goal. Never his goal. If God was okay with death, he would not have given us the power of resurrection. He wouldn't have told us to go out into the nations preaching the gospel, healing the sick, and raising the dead. He would have skipped that phrase. There's something about death that he knows isn't isn't right. Something about death that goes against his original plan. And we can get into that (laughs) at the next podcast when I deal with the book of Genesis. But the principle, I think, is there. But here we just get a list of death. (laughs) I don't know. Uh, It just tells us stuff. tells us that that, that the battles would continue year after year. It, it definitely lets us know why David was home when he saw Bathsheba. He was there because his men forced him to stay at home. 
They couldn't take it anymore. They couldn't take the pressure. Imagine the pressure of Abishai when he sees the giant chasing David down. He sees David losing ground, like the David's normal speed that he would use to run away from a giant. Giants weren't that fast. As trained as they were as warriors, they weren't necessarily all that fast, and David was losing ground to the giant. Abishai, like you picture him across the battlefield, he sees what's going on, and 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 he can tell David's getting exhausted. He turns periodically, he fights the giant for a little bit, you know, but but the but his sword isn't standing stiff. It's getting knocked out, knocked away or knocked over by the giant, and and he sees David, you know, barely getting out of the way of the spear, and the giant picks up the spear, and David starts running some more, and the giant's gaining on him, and and it looks like Abishai's like panicked. He runs across the battlefield and you know jumps in front of this guy or tackles him from the side they get into this huge back and forth and ultimately he kills the giant and you picture david looking at him with a big smile on his face you know saying hey well that was close thanks for coming by or what took you so long or or uh i was waiting for you i I wanted you to have a giant in your belt you know i already have one like there was there might have been some goofy battlefield exchange where David tried to deflect the fact that he literally just almost died. But it wasn't lost on Abishai and Joab. It wasn't last lost on a lot of the men who saw what was going on out of the corner of their eye and knew that that their their general, what they called the light or the lamp of Israel, the one who understood where they were going as a culture, the one they understood was shifting the the dynamics of their nation. They were like, we cannot have you die. None of us can do what you're doing. And David, David agreed. David agreed. I guess probably in the end, when he, when he sat there and everybody had, you know, in that moment when Abishai and him might have laughed a little bit, and then Abishai turned and went on to the battle, and David sat there for a moment in the dirt or stood there in the in the battlefield and thought, wow, that was close. There was a there was a come to Jesus moment (laughs) in which he realized I can't do this anymore. And so he agreed and he stayed home. And then he saw Bathsheba the next year, probably. Anyways, that's the end of today's stories. And we will continue next time with this amazing epic narrative. Hey everyone, thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to this podcast on any platform you use. You can also reach out to Bob for questions or booking at thebobswitzer.com or email him at thebobswitzer at gmail.com. See you next week, guys.